Okay, well, uh, we might as well get started because we're starting a little later than normal for these classes. I can't hardly get here ready to do anything by 7, so we're starting a little later, so I don't want to go past 8.30. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Let me open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless this meeting as we look into your covenantal way of dealing with mankind. May the Holy Spirit open our hearts to this truth from your word and guide our discussion tonight and throughout the next few weeks. We ask this in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the title of this session is, or this series of classes is Covenant and God's Purpose for the World. Now if that doesn't sound like a grandiose title, uh, I don't know what does, but but we're going to try and actually do this in six lessons, perhaps five. I want to start off by giving credit where credit is due, and that is this book by Tom Schreiner. There's a picture of old Tom there. was the inspiration for this class. I read this book, and I thought, wow, that was really a fun, enjoyable, inspiring book that I learned a lot from. And so, Paul's been bugging me to try another class, so I thought I would use that to put this class together. He is currently a chaired professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Baptist Seminary and also professor of biblical theology. However, in addition to Tom's book, which is listed there at the top, I've, I've used another other resources to make sure that... Uh, I, I kind of understand the topic and that uh, Tom Schreiner is presenting something that's not unique, but something that is common to a, a number of scholars. And, in fact, all of those books more or less generally agree with Tom Schreiner's approach. Uh, so, first, uh, his book is is a short book. It's in the li- There's a couple of three copies in the library. It costs $11.77 on Amazon, and I'm going to be using uh, the flow of his argument, as I mentioned in the previous slide, is basically from this book. I quote him often in here without citation, and if you're not a note taker, but you have $11.77, you don't need to take notes because basically it's all in here. Uh, the second book that was pretty important for me in preparing for this study is this one by Wellam and uh, Gentry called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. It's a little longer, and but it has great stuff in it. So I would encourage you to read that. There's at least one copy in the library. This is my copy. And one more I'll mention is the uh, second one here is Palmer Robertson's classic book called Christ of the Covenants. This is also in the library. It's a it's a great resource. And uh, so I just wanted to just show some of the resources that have been brought to bear in putting this together. If you'll notice, you can't you can't tell it. I don't know whether you can read it now or not, but in the upper right hand corner it says Short Studies in Biblical Theology. And this is a series of books. Here's two more from that series that uh are in the library, The Son of God and the New Creation by Graham Goldsworthy. 
Uh, here's a short study in biblical theology on the subject of marriage and the mystery of the gospel. So there's like six of these books out. Uh, a seventh, uh, seventh has just hit the streets. And uh, so that whole series is good. But the question is, what is biblical theology? Now, when I, uh, if I just simply say biblical theology, then I'm referring to someone's theology or some theology that I believe is biblical. And in this sense, that's just simply an adjective for the word theology. But if I say biblical theology with capital B, capital T, that's the proper name and it's referring to something uh, other than this. And so my question is, uh, does that term mean anything to you? Or can I take a few minutes to explain that term? Okay. Biblical theology uh, was it first introduced in the evangelical world by Gerhardus Voss, uh, who was at Princeton back in the early years. And in fact, in his uh, inaugural address at Princeton in 1894, the title of his address was Biblical Theology as Science and a Theological Discipline. And what he was saying is, this is a discipline that really is on the same level as systematic theology and historical theology, for example. So we're all familiar with systematic theology because scholars write them. And one thing about systematic theology characteristically is it goes and takes everything the Bible has to say about specific topics like Scripture, uh, God, salvation, Christ, etc., etc., and pulls those together and arranges them topically. So when you go through a systematic theology, if you want to see what it has to say about angels, not Al, but other angels, fallen or non-fallen, you could go to a systematic theology and it would it would pull together everything in Scripture that dealt with angels and would make some conclusions based on what that is. Now, historical theology is another is on the same level as systematic theology. And if you're familiar with, if you've read any historical theologies, what that does is it traces the development of Christian doctrine through the centuries from apostolic fathers, from the apostles, apostolic fathers, early church fathers, and on through the centuries and shows how Christian doctrine developed and changed. And of course, it shows how after four or five hundred AD things got kind of Roman Catholic in the in the West. And uh, then of course of the Protestant Reformation we got recentered with the five solas. And so it traces how these different things develop. So you can look at the doctrine of Christ as uh, seen by the Roman Catholics at one point in time, by the Reformation guys, Calvin and, and all, all of that stuff. So that's historical theology. Well, biblical theology is now regarded as being on the same level as these. And 
the features of this is what we're going to talk about a little bit so you'll get a better understanding of what do we mean when we say biblical theology. Uh, Gerhardus Voss described it this way. It's that branch of exegetical theology which deals with the process of the self-revelation of God as found in the Bible. And what he's trying to point out is something that uh, D.A. Carson says a little differently. Biblical theology seeks to articulate the unity of Scripture as a whole using the categories from the text itself. And as we go through a couple of these definitions, you'll start to pick up exactly what we're getting at. Uh, for one thing, it's canonical in nature. In other words, it takes the whole Bible as one inspired whole and regards it as that from the beginning. And it studies the unfolding storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. The unfolding storyline can be studied through any number of themes. For example, covenant, which is the theme we're going to be using in this study. But there are other themes that you could use to to do a biblical theology. Kingdom, which is very closely related to covenant. Promise fulfillment is another thing that you will see through Scripture as you go through. And you could use promise fulfillment as a way of tying the storyline of the Bible together, reconciliation, patterns of reversal. For example, it's amazing how many times in Scripture you see God picking the younger over the older. You see God picking the weaker over the stronger. You see God picking the outsider over the insider, bringing them into the covenant. And so there's a number of things that you could use. We've picked one. But the thing is, rather than look at modern questions and categories uh, when you do a biblical theology, this, this approach pushes you toward the categories and symbols that the authors of Scripture used. For example, the word covenant. It actually gets us back to a more biblical way of thinking. If you're thinking in terms that the biblical authors used themselves. And that's, that's the approach that biblical theology tries to take. So the presuppositions for this class I want to go over, and these are the same presuppositions that you find in biblical theology in general. As I mentioned, or we got from some of the definitions earlier, the Bible tells a coherent, unified story which offers a framework within which each book may be best interpreted. Jesus Christ is the heart of that story. And that's a fundamental presupposition for biblical theology and a fundamental presupposition for this study and a fundamental teaching of Scripture. And so to uh, point that out, let's look at those three verses real quick. If you have your Bibles handy. The first scripture, Luke 24, I'll just read verse 27. You remember the story, it's the, on the road to Emmaus, uh, the road to Emmaus when uh, Christ meets the two and visits with them and he ends up 
saying in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, he's referring to the Old Testament. So, when when we approach the Old Testament, we don't see Jesus Christ jumping out at us. But what he's saying is, I'm there. Okay? Now, a little further down in Luke 24, uh, let's just read verse 44. This is to his disciples after he had risen. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So when he says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, those are the Old Testament or the Jewish categories which capture the entire Old Testament. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's why we say Jesus Christ is the heart of the story of the Bible. Now, although the Bible tells a unified story, God's revelation is progressively progressively unfolded. For example, God's truth isn't revealed all at once, and the full meaning of an Old Testament passage may not be clear unless the whole Bible is considered, especially the New Testament, for the New Testament does some unique interpretation and explanation of the Old Testament. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. And why would we say that? Because we believe that God is the author ultimately, and it's one story from beginning to end. And so any contradiction that we see is a contradiction in our understanding, ultimately not a contradiction in the Scriptures themselves. You've often heard it said, let clear passages interpret less clear passages. Rather than let, rather than trying to develop a doctrine or a teaching from a passage that's not clear, use the clearer teaching to interpret that instead of coming up with some oddball interpretation on your, on your own. Take for example, Genesis 3.15, which is the first gospel where God promises a seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That doesn't say anything about Jesus Christ, but it was a promise given in the very first chapters of Genesis that a Redeemer was coming. And we see that more clear as we go through the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament where we're told specifically that was referring to Jesus Christ. The Bible is the story of God's relationship with mankind from creation to recreation. And that's the story we're going to be looking at through covenant. Also, lastly, uh, the New Testament interprets and explains the Old Testament. Now, let me just dwell on that for just a moment. 
we should read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. The New Testament, admittedly, is built on the foundation of the Old Testament, and many New Testament concepts are based on the Old Testament, and that's great. As a matter of fact, our understanding of the New Testament is greatly enriched by our understanding of the Old Testament. But we should not read the Old Testament as if the New Testament did not exist. Let me say that again. We should not read the Old Testament as if the New Testament was a parenthesis unknown to those in the Old Testament or unknown to the people of God. Because the New Testament explains the Old Testament. If you come up with something that's based strictly on the Old Testament without considering the New Testament, you're going down the wrong alley, in my opinion. And that's a presupposition of biblical theology, too, because Christ is the center of the story, the heart of the story. The New Testament builds on Old Testament concepts, of course, often in surprising ways, particularly how the New Testament authors treat the Old Testament prophecies. And that's key. You may be familiar with an old saying that I believe is attributed to Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, or Augustine, Ron keeps correcting how I say that. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. You get what he's saying? The New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, but but the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. We understand the Old Testament only as we read it through the lens of the New Testament. Now, here's a couple of quotes that I thought were pretty good, especially since one of them is Charles Spurgeon. The doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of all true theology. And then quoting our author that we're using to kind of channel our study uh, in this series is Tom Schreiner. We can't truly understand the scriptures if we don't understand the covenants God made with his people. As a matter of fact, I I tweeted uh, Tom Schreiner and told him I was going to be doing this class based on his book, asked for his blessings and prayers, and he said, he was real excited to hear that and hoped that uh, God did bless this. And so I appreciate that. According to him, and and when I say others, those other resources that I've used, he's not the only one saying this. Covenant is one of the most important words in the Bible. Covenant introduces one of the central theological themes in Scripture. He was hesitant to say It is the most central theme, but it is certainly one of the most important and one of the most central themes, theologically, that the Scriptures give to us. Divine covenants form the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. And that's what I hope we come out of this class seeing, is that the covenants in Scripture are linked And as you see how they're linked together, Tom says they form the backbone for the storyline of the Bible. And you can grasp what the Bible as one story is trying to say. And that's pretty cool, I think.
Divine covenants help us see the harmony and the unity of the entire biblical message. Because these biblical covenants that we will study, or we will talk about in summary fashion, unfortunately, uh, are not independent of each other. They're dependent on each other. And they help us see, like it says here, the unity of the storyline of the Bible. We want to comprehend how the Bible fits together so we can grasp the overarching narrative and the theology of the Bible. And to understand the scriptures well, we need to understand how the divine covenants are interrelated. We need to see how they advance the story of God's kingdom in the scriptures. And we need to consider the whole counsel of God. As as I was saying earlier, everything in the Bible is part of one story. We need to consider everything when we're trying to develop a way of understanding. The covenants are key in tracing out the progress of redemptive history. Some refer to it as the drama of redemption. Redemptive history. What is God doing with man from beginning to end? That's what the covenants help us trace out. Any com- any questions? Any comments? We certainly have time for questions or clarifications. Now, most often covenants are described, or the word covenant is described rather than defined. So we're going to look at some descriptions of covenant so that you get a feeling through these descriptions of what a covenant is at its root so we can understand the word itself. And then we'll look at trying to come up with a definition that somehow captures most of the uh, descriptive words. Firstly, a covenant is a personal relationship based on trust, not a contract. As a matter of fact, Contracts in the secular world are based on no trust. That's why you have them. (laughs) But a covenant is based on trust as part of a relationship that is, that is intimate to that process. A relationship and trust are part of a covenant. A covenant is a chosen or elected relationship between two parties. Each party in the relationship pledges to carry out the stipulations or requirements of the covenant. A covenant includes often binding promises, obligations, and often blessings and curses. And here's something I thought was important that uh, Graham Goldsworthy said. A covenant is a reciprocal relationship by nature. Sometimes we don't think of them being reciprocal. He says the very nature of a covenant is its reciprocal relationship. Now, of course, a divine covenant, when we're talking about a covenant that God makes, that certainly is unilateral in its origin. He establishes it. He sets it up. But once that's established... It is bilateral and reciprocal in its essence. It involves two parties in a reciprocal relationship. 
Here are some uh, definitions that I picked up along the way. Now, these definitions are are trying to capture the essence of what the word covenant means, but they're doing it at a somewhat of a simplistic level. They're not giving the fullness of what that word means, but they're trying to describe so that we can get an idea what is a covenant. Bruce Walkey has a fairly short uh, definition. A solemn commitment of oneself to undertake an obligation. The thing that doesn't show up there is the emphasis on two parties and a reciprocal relationship. But basically he's saying it's a commitment of oneself. And if there's two parties, then it's a commitment on both parties' parts to undertake an obligation. When God makes a covenant, for instance, God makes an obligation and the reciprocal party makes an obligation, undertakes an obligation. Uh, Gordon Hugenberger says it's an elected as opposed to a natural relationship of obligation under oath. And his point is, these are not necessarily based on natural relationships, but is a relationship that is oftentimes established by the covenant itself. In other words, it's not necessarily a pre-existing relationship or a natural relationship. Mark Jones says at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. And then finally, one that's a little more wordy, an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties involving a solemn binding obligation made by oath under threat of a curse. That's probably closer to the definition that we should be thinking of. So this is my attempt at a definition, not the definition, just a definition. A covenant is a chosen personal relationship, trying to pick up some of those words we just talked about, with promises and obligations made between two parties under solemn oath. Now, of course, once we get into this series, we're going to be focusing on the divine covenants, but covenants were used dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament to refer to relationships that were set up and bound by oath uh, between men and uh, rulers and subjects and kings. Not all covenants are divine covenants. But in this case, with this definition, it, it also applies to covenants with God, even though God is the sovereign Lord and we are the subjects, we are still meeting him in a relationship, an elected relationship which has obligations on both parts. Questions, comments? That's a good question. You know, when God establishes marriage in Genesis 2 or wherever it is, he talks about the husband and wife will... He will cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. He's, he is setting up marriage as a divine institution. He doesn't use the word covenant there, though. It satisfies that. In fact, we'll see a place. Sure does, doesn't it? In fact, we'll see that, in fact, later scripture does call marriage a covenant. That's a good point, Lynn. So first... Let's talk about just general covenants in the Bible. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. 
Uh, sometimes people put an H on the end. Sometimes they don't. But I'm not a Hebrew uh, student, so we're not going to be doing a lot of Hebrew. But you're probably familiar with the word Berit because you'll see it, see it a lot of times crop up in in the uh, literature. The word is used in the Old Testament for a variety of oath-bound commitments in various relationships. General covenants among men, which I just referred to, those can be interpersonal. For example, personal agreements, loyalty agreements, like uh, David and Jonathan made a covenant. That was more or less a loyalty covenant. Uh, they can be socio-political. They can, in essence, sometimes function simply as treaties, or they can function as clan alliances or national agreements. And you'll see you'll see these throughout Scripture where the word berit or the word covenant is used. Now, of course, when we speak of divine covenants, there's a little bit of a difference because those are between God and mankind. And, of course, they're sovereignly established by God. But first, let's look at just a few. Here's a handful of... Yeah, Al, question. That would be a discussion if I were doing a class on covenant theology because there is reference to a theological covenant which is called the covenant of redemption where the covenant is made within the persons of the Trinity to accomplish redemption. And uh, But that is not, strictly speaking, a biblical covenant. And so I'm not going to get off on on that too much, but 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 you're exactly right. These covenants are just examples, a scattering of examples from the Old Testament where the word covenant is used. And I thought it might be helpful to just take a look at these, uh, or a few of these, not all of them. Two parties entering a formal relationship or a bond in which promises are made. And, Lynn, if you jump to the last, you see that in those two passages, marriage is called a covenant. And what's interesting is in both those passages, we'll look at one of them, it's accusing one party of violating the marriage covenant. In fact, that's when they call it a covenant. You have, you have been faithless to your, the wife of your youth the wife of covenant, or something to that effect. We'll look at that verse. So let's look at Abraham and Abimelech, Genesis 21. We're not going to look at the whole story because that's not the purpose of this, but it's mainly just to show how they use the word covenant. Now, there was a dispute over a water well. Uh, Abraham and Abimelech were, were rulers. They had their own people. They had their own land. They had their own flocks. And there was an agreement that you you don't mess with my stuff, I won't mess with yours. But there was a dispute over this well because actually Abraham had dug it and it was Abimelech's guys that had kind of set up camp around the well and were hogging the water. And so he says, and so he, he makes an issue of this. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs? He brought seven lambs. Earlier he says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. 
about my men hoarding the water. And so Abraham brings these seven lambs, uh, and he says, what's the meaning of this? And he said, Abraham, these seven new lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And Abimelech agrees. He knew he dug the well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. And there we we think about the description and definitions we used. They used the word covenant to describe, you know, you be, you be fair to me and keep to yourself, I'll be fair to you. It could be looked at kind of like a treaty, but there's more to it than that here because they this established a relationship that they were both to honor as well as their people were to honor that covenant. Uh, next one we'll look at is Jacob and Laban, Genesis chapter 31, where Jacob is, after many years, is finally about to, f- finally leaving Laban with his two daughters. Laban kept him there for years. And Laban says, come now, let us make a covenant. That's the word berit. Let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar and said to his kinsmen, gather stones and stack them up around here to hold this pillar up. And they made a heap, and there they ate a meal. And oftentimes in Old Testament covenants, part of the ceremony was to have a meal to kind of seal the deal. It was a testimony to this relationship. And then Laban says, If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. In other words, this is like put your hand on the Bible deal. In other words, they were making a covenant with each other, but it was in the sight of the Lord that this covenant was made. And Laban's reminded him, look, even though I won't be watching, God knows about this covenant. So that's an interesting take. But the ceremonial meal and a witness to this covenant, a physical witness, in this case, the stone pillar is set up. A lot of times there's a physical witness left, and a lot of times there's a meal as part of the covenant. In fact, here's a woodcut of uh, Jacob and Laban. You see there, I guess that's Jacob on the left, Laban on the right. You see the stone pillar he set up, the rocks that were gathered and placed against it to hold it up. And Laban's pointing to God. I think that's when he was saying that last sentence. God's, God knows about this covenant too, so don't break it. Now, here's another one. This is between... David and the people at Hebron when he was designated king in 2 Samuel 5, verses 2 and 3. And so I think the prophet is saying to him, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed him king. So he he's making a it doesn't go into details about what is involved as far as the promise and obligations of that covenant but you can you can only imagine I will be a faithful 
a, a ruler and lead you in the ways of the Lord. And people, we will be faithful people and we will follow you in the ways of the Lord. Something to that effect. That was They were making a covenant to do that. And so made a covenant. There it is again. Quickly, King Solomon and King Hiram. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was a, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. Now treaty here is the same word berit. Uh, the ESV translates it treaty. The NASB translates it covenant. But it's the same word, and in this, this sense, the translators see it as more simply a treaty than maybe the full-blown uh, ramifications of the word covenant might have. But it's the same word in the Hebrew. Then finally, in, regarding marriage, which uh, Lynn brought up, Malachi 2.14, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so there, even though the word covenant was not used in Genesis 2, or 1 and 2, it's called a covenant later in Scripture. And, and, and so you're right. The definition of covenant brings that to mind. I think the Proverbs passage says something like, he has ignored her marriage, she has ignored her marriage covenant before God. So both of those are used kind of in negative context. Now, when we get to divine covenants, of course, there's an added dimension of them being sovereignly instituted by God, of course. But that's how God has chosen to relate to man, by way of covenant. Whether in the garden or after the entrance of sin into the world, that's how God deals with mankind, by way of covenant. And that's what we're going to... try and demonstrate in this class. Divine covenants are the means through which God reveals his kindness, goodness, and wisdom to man. And in divine covenants, of course, God sovereignly establishes the relationship with his creatures, man. And finally, the goal of all divine human covenants is summed up by the words found throughout the Bible, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. And that goes from Exodus through Ezekiel into the New Testament. You see those verses there, 2 Corinthians 6.16, all the way to Revelation 21.3. The same idea of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. Now, when divine covenants are talked about in Scripture, there's a couple of little uh, things we need to, a couple more Hebrew words we need to at least look at. Again, the Hebrew word for covenant is berit, but it's sometimes preceded by the word hakim which is usually translated establish in the sense of affirming or confirming. And there's two references there where the word hakim berit is, the phrase hakim berit is used. Now, it's also found preceded by the word karat, which is usually translated make or made, 
in the sense of to initiate or inaugurate or enter into as, as the origination, so to speak. But one of the problems is uh, the word establish is uh, kind of ambiguous in that respect. In the dictionaries, uh, the establish can mean A, to make firm. In that sense, it, it's proper to see it as translating hakimbarit as to affirm or confirm something that in some sense already exists. That's the point that's tr- that they're trying to make here. But establish can also mean to set up or create. And in that sense, to me, it means the same thing as make or made, (laughs) if you see what I mean. But this is just to point out that when you read your translations, when it says establish a covenant, when they translate it establish a covenant, they're translating the word hakim. And oftentimes the sense is to affirm or confirm. When they say God made a covenant, or when God said, I will make a covenant, it's using the word karat, which means, which is, which they translate it make or made, and that's in the sense of actually initiating a covenant. So you see the, see the distinction there? Now, literally karat barit means to cut a covenant. And that's most dramatically seen in the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where he puts Abraham to sleep after Abraham has killed the animals and laid them across from each other. And God walks between the animals by himself. Karat Barit is used there, and that's a dramatic demonstration of what it can mean because they're actually talking about cutting animals as, as part of a blood oath, so to speak. This is an oath made in blood. It's a life or death oath that's being taken. The thing is, uh, we use something like that today when we talk about cutting a deal with somebody. Now, I don't know whether etymology relates to this, but we say kind of the same thing. And we don't mean cutting animals in half. And it's hard to say exactly whether when they use karat barit, where we are we to understand that when karat barit is used every time that animals were slain and laid apart? I can't answer that. I think there's only one other time in Scripture where it uses, where it gives us the picture of slain animals. And that is later in Scripture. I think maybe Jeremiah or something, but it's much later. And so you have it, you have them describing slain animals in Genesis 15, you have them describing slain animals much later in the Old Testament. Some people say those are like bookends. All covenants had, when they use the word karat, had blood, was a blood oath with blood. And I can't say whether that's true or not. I'm not sure it is. I think, I think it, it came to be used in a more colloquial sense. But the emphasis on karat it's not so much that there's animals cut, but Karat is that God uh, is making this and he's initiating it. It's not some relationship that preexisted, which could be connoted from this. So that's the that's a couple of things to ponder.
and I'm not, I don't want to make too much out of it. As, as a matter of fact, uh, Tom Schreiner will say the context determines whether it's affirming, the context will determine whether it's confirming or inaugurating. Uh, and, and this shouldn't be a hard and fast rule. That's Tom. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam in this book say, if you do your exegesis properly, you'll find out that that rule is never broken. And they give some interesting uh, exegesis to show that whenever Hakim is used, it's in the sense of affirm and confirm. Whenever Karat is used, it's used in the sense of initiate or to inaugurate. So you got two different views. So that tells me I shouldn't be making too much of a big deal out of this. But it's just for information. Because you'll see references to cut a covenant into the slaying of animals, which is certainly part of the original concept. Now, as we move forward, of course, we're going to be focusing on the divine covenants. And the covenants we're going to be looking at specifically are covenant of creation or a covenant in the garden, the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic or uh, covenant, the covenant with David, and then ultimately the new covenant. So we're going to, in the process of the next couple of three or four weeks, go through those. Now we have about ten minutes left, and if you have any questions, now would be a good time. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and give you a pre, little bit of a preview uh, of, of next week, and we'll go ahead and get started on what would be coming up next week. So do you have any questions before we leave this section? Okay, well, let's not... I heard something. Nope. So, at this point, we're going to look at a covenant of creation or the Adamic covenant. Using famous portrait there. I don't know where it is. Ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Anyway, this is the first covenant that we're going to look at. But the problem is, this first covenant is somewhat controversial. And when I say that, it's because there are some scholars who argue that there was not a covenant per se in the garden or with Adam. So whether or not there was officially or whether or not you could call it a covenant is debated. Uh, John Murray, the famous John Murray uh, of Westminster Seminary in the old days, denied that there was a covenant per se in the garden or with Adam. And he preferred to call it an Adamic administration. But... The thing is, he described that administration in the very same words that one would use in describing a covenant. So, I'm not sure what his hang-up was with calling it a covenant of creation, or a covenant with Adam, but he didn't like the term. And one of the main things that's always pointed out is, the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1-3. through The word's not there. So how can you call it a covenant? Secondly, it is argued that Adam and Eve were in a unique situation at creation, unlike all the covenants after the fall, which is dealing with fallen man. Adam and Eve weren't fallen. 
why why do you say there was a covenant with Adam and Eve? Not a bad question. In fact, one of the questions could be, well, I, I want to say we're going to presume there is a covenant and try and show that and and show why. Those who accept a creation covenant with Adam use various terms to label it. Some call it a covenant of nature. Some call it a covenant of works. The covenant theologians, especially the Westminster variety, have the covenant of works referring to this covenant and the covenant of grace referring to everything after this covenant. Some refer the word covenant of creation. Some use the word covenant of life. But they're all using it to describe this initial covenant in the garden. I just soon call it the Adamic covenant. And in this class, we're going to call it covenant of creation. And there's a reason, not the least of which is because that's what Tom called it. But because it fits with the overarching view of redemptive history. It enables us to see how this covenant integrates with all the other covenants. Because it does integrate. And that's a crucial point. Those who deny a covenant in the garden or a covenant with Adam end up with kind of a truncated view of the covenants because they've left out that one. And that one plays right into the ones that follow. And they're integrally related. God inaugurated history with creation. And he will consummate it with the new creation. And so calling it a covenant of creation, we see that we start with creation, which God called very good. Man fell, but we're going to end up with a new creation. God did not give up on creation. And so that's why calling it a covenant of creation, I think, uh, fits better with what we're about in this, ses- in this uh, series of classes. The old original creation anticipates and points forward to the new creation. God inaugurated history with creation. God will consummate history with the new creation. And how does he do this? By way of covenant. And that's what we're going to be studying in the weeks to come. God takes us from one point to the next and he does it by way of covenant. So we'll be looking at that. And with that, I'm going to stop for tonight. Ron, would you mind closing us in prayer?